0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 72. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about working with indigenous communities in the Philippines. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch. Or Ute Peoples Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Pueblo and Homeland. And today we have Dr. Una Paredes on the show. Una Paredes is Associate Professor of Southeast Asian Studies in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures at UCLA. She is the author of A Mountain of Difference, the Lumad in Early Colonial Mindanao, published in 2013, as well as multiple academic articles on indigenous peoples in the Philippines and she was born and raised in the Philippines. So, Welcome to the
3: show, Una. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Like you and I talked about before we we started, there's, there's lots to cover here that I think will be new and interesting for our listeners. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into all of that. Also, I, I didn't mention this beforehand, but it's kind of funny to be talking about the Philippines today because it is snowing pretty hard here <laughs> in southwest Colorado, so it feels a little oh. funny to be talking about, you know, a tropical place when it's it's snowing pretty good. But yeah, so to get us started, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about yes. like what got you into this field? How did you get interested in this kind of work?
3: I sort of stumbled into anthropology in college. I guess I've always been interested in culture and different cultures. Growing up in the Philippines, it's a very multicultural kind of place. Every new island you go to or every section of of an island that you go to, there's a different language, a different culture group, different um, heritage. And so I was exposed to all of that, you know, from, you know, an early age. And so I've always been interested in c- that kind of stuff. And when it came to deciding on what to major in, I think I was already in my junior year and I still had to pick a major. And I sort of realized that all the books on my shelf were about culture and about anthropology and ethnography. And and so I ended up majoring in anthropology with a minor in history. And between my BA and graduate school, I interned at Cultural Survival Foundation and. um in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And if you're not familiar with cultural survival, they're one of these NGOs that work on, I guess, sort of trying to, uh, they work on indigenous rights and, or at least that's their, you know, focus. It's a lot of stuff about preserving disappearing cultures, but that kind of approach, you know. And in that internship, I, I sort of, I thought, well, you know, I'd really like to do this, but I realized I didn't know that much about the you know the indigenous groups in the country that I grew up in, in my own homeland, and so it sort of started from there. And I eventually landed in the community that I've been working with for over twenty years now, about over twenty-five years, I think. And that's basically how it happened. It just sort of, just sort of fumbled along, and 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 uh, landed where I did. Yeah. So I mean,
2: with the Philippines having so much diversity and, you know, so many different people and islands and places you could have worked. How did you choose the the community that you've been working with
3: for the past 20 years? Oh, hmm. well, yeah, that's a good question. I think most, when most people think about the Philippines and indigenous communities, indigenous peoples, they think of the north. The Igorots are, I think, more famous around the world than any other sort of subcategory of indigenous minority groups in the Philippines. But I thought, well, you know, I'd like to learn more about where I grew up. And uh, I'm from the island of Mindanao, which is in the south. And a lot of people in the Philippines are, you know, just look at Mindanao with trepidation. We sort of really sort of consider it to be a very dangerous sort of area. Was the frontier for uh, Filipino settlers and, you know, in terms of internal migration? And so, but that's where my family's from. And, but it was hard, it was really, it was really difficult to find ethnographies of such groups in Mindanao. And I landed upon one by a an anthropologist slash priest named um, Gabriel Casal, and it was on the Tiboli of Mindanao and they're from um, south, Cotab- they're from Cotabato, which is in the north, uh, sorry, the south, west portion of Mindanao. And it was, you know, a really lovely sort of, I would say, sort of a B flat type of ethnography, very sort of romanticized, sort of something produced in the 60s, I think his book was. And so initially I went over there and sort of, again, fumbled my way through, met some cool people, talked to some people, hung out. And um, I thought maybe I can, you know, go back and do something serious here. It just so happened that at the same time, that same year and that that same sort of period when I was in Mindanao, one of my uncles was dying and he happened to be my favorite uncle. And he was from my, you know, uh, home province in the north. I'm from the northern coast of of, of Mindanao Island. So I went over there and, you know, he was dying. Well, we didn't know he was dying then. He was in a hospital and, and he actually wanted to talk to me. And so I went over and um, talked to him at the hospital. And he said, why are you studying the Teboli when we have our own, we have our own, you know, tribes, is, you know, what we call them in the Philippines, a tribo. Um, we have our own tribo in, you know, in our home province. And I didn't know that. And so he told me, yeah, talk to my, you know. This, this colleague of his who I knew, I said, all right. And uh, a, few, a couple of days after that, he died. And so I basically, it was sort of, I mean, not to be too melodramatic about it, but it, it literally was a deathbed promise for me to go, you know, go to, to, to this, this, uh, this community. And so I, I managed to arrange a trip up there and I've just been working with them since. Everything just sort of clicked and, uh, and they I think in, in part were willing to tolerate my presence because of my uncle. Um, because he had worked with them in the past. He was a local government official. He was a mayor of the Mm -hmm. town that he was in, and he had um, spent a lot of time in that community. There's been, uh, and still ongoing, um, there's been a lot of... Uh, There's been a sort of an ongoing insurgency, a rebel movement in in the Philippines, and a lot of it is in Mindanao, uh, especially in the more remote sort of um, upland areas where a lot of the indigenous minorities live. And he uh, had been helping... The, the the tribe out in terms of keeping the peace and making sure that they got left alone by both the military and the rebels and so he he that was part of his work as mayor and i think he just sort of endeared himself to the to just the the, the tribe as a whole you know, so that's it's it's a very uh, sort of a very personal type of relationship, uh, a, a per- very personal reason why I went into this, but at the same time, the, the, the sort of the, the I guess the core reason in terms of um, you know in, in terms of academic research was that I was just so shocked that I had never heard of of these these people at all in the whole time I was growing up in my home no. province. That was gonna and be my next once question I for you. <laughs> Learn about them. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was like a real eye-opener for me. And I just, you know, um, you know, one of those things where you just sort of wake up and realize how blind you've been and how how colonized your mentality has been, that you're you're so focused in terms of you know who you are and 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 the history of of where you're from, that you 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 just look at it from a very sort of western outside perspective. You don't really know what's what's been going on, where you grew up. And then, but the minute that I, um, you know, sort of learned about them, I started asking other people, like, have you, you, you know about this, right? And they're like, yeah. So I just, maybe it was just me, but even my grandmother knew, knew about these. She remembered when she was small that they would come down to trade with her, with her father who owned a, um, a dry goods sort of shop. Um, they would come in and, and trade rice, for example, uh, for um you know, whatever they needed, hemp and and those sorts of products. And yeah, so it was a really, it was a, it was a really um, profound learning experience for me, just getting to the point where I found the community to work with. Uh, So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a journey, let me tell you. Well, that, okay, so that
2: ties in... To basically the what we were talking about before we got on 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 air, which was about how mm-hmm. uh, indigeneity is is a little different in in the Philippines and Southeast Asia than yep. what a lot of our, our listeners are going to be used to hearing about. You know, especially the show tends to to heavily focus yep. on on the Americas, and you know we've had some guests from other places, but predominantly the Americas. So so can you get into
3: explain a little bit? About uh, some of the differences there. Oh, sure, and and you know, I, I guess I, I should say that the the differences in context and the differences in terms of how indigeneity is 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 um, used and and constructed and 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 understood and and all of that is itself a subject of academic sort of theorizing, I guess, among those of us who work with indigenous groups in Southeast, indigenous minority groups in Southeast Asia, because we do use the the terminology from the Americas, from the North, but we use the, the, the scholarship and the terminology used by indigenous scholars in the North. And that particular understanding of indigeneity is really hegemonic around the world. And so we keep trying to still I mean, maybe harmonizing these definitions is, is this the wrong way to look at it? But we we still we're using that language to talk about a completely different context. But, but yeah, so it's, that's also very interesting in in you know in terms of um, theorizing about it. Okay. Well, the key difference here is that even though Southeast Asia was colonized, um, it was colonized in a very different way. We didn't have the kind of settler colonialism that you have in the North, uh, in sorry, in in North and, and, and in the Americas, or in Australia and New Zealand. Certainly not white settler colon- colonization, but there is a lot of internal resettlement and internal colonization that has gone on over the centuries, and even more significantly in the post-colonial period in Southeast Asia. So you have in Southeast Asia then a paradox where it's true that practically everybody there is indigenous in the literal sense, where, you know, we're really from there, like me, I am, you know, a native of Mindanao. Okay. And that's a true statement. My mom's family is from there, from as early as we can trace back. I have ancestry from other parts of the Philippines, but that's the place that I consider home and my, my yeah, basically my, my home my hometown, my home province. But at the same time, there are so many different types of, of people, different types of communities in the Philippines, different types of ethnic groups. And some of these groups basically were more closely incorporated into the colonial system, whereas others were not. Or they were incorporated in a very different kind of way. I don't like to use the word assimilation versus unassi- uh, assimilated versus unassimilated because I think that's very misleading. We're talking about political incorporation, um, economic incorporation, and 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 all of that. So some groups were more incorporated than others, um, and transformed in particular ways. And these are the 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 ethnic groups that are now the majority that form the mainstream of of Filipino society that we tend uh, and they 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 do the sorts of things that we we think of as being Filipino culture by default and then you have these much smaller communities usually in the uplands or less accessible areas in terms of sort of, um, you know, highways and and main waterways and that, that kind of stuff. And a lot of these communities either resisted incorporation into the colonial system or were just sort of, or the colonial government never bothered that much because they were so hard to get to. And these communities are indigenous minorities. In terms of the dynamic between the mainstream community, mainstream groups, and minority groups, this kind of dynamic between them has been quite problematic most of the time, has been exploitative, and and it's that sort of relationship that has given rise to the use of Indigenous peoples when we refer to the Indigenous minorities. So... The Philippines is the only country in Southeast Asia that uses the English words in indigenous peoples, and so it's shortened to IP in the Philippines. Or we use some native words like Lumad or Katutubo, which mean basically means native or indigenous. And so, yeah. So the paradox is, you have a country of natives, but some people are designated indigenous, using capital I indigenous as Basically, a political designation, and because their experience, even though it's you know their experience of, of of oppression and marginalization and 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 really sort of colonization in the present day has been at the hands of other natives, and so that's like the key difference between I think the Americas and and you know the sort of white settler situations and what's what's going on in in the Philippines and other parts of Southeast Asia. So it's it's like a we use indigenous and indigeneity as a, a political designation rather than a i don't know what 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 sort of designation you would call it um in the americas because you have that 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 paradox of you have indigenous people in a country of natives
2: right okay sorry this is really <laughs> my brain's going a, a million miles an hour this is super interesting oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah and you know i think it's interesting too cuz like one of the things that you're saying is is making me think of you know, in the Americas, mm-hmm. there was all of all of these same situations, I guess, if you will, where, mm-hmm. you know, some indigenous groups, you know, conquered others or enslaved others or, you oh, know, yeah. like, it's not like there's yeah. not, there wasn't that complexity here. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, but you're right. Like, it gets portrayed as if... I don't know. It all begins and ends with colonization, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, when we when we talk about colonization now, we're talking about European colonization, you know. So that right. that was a very right. uh, that 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 was a distinct. Uh, type of colonization that that did happen in Southeast Asia and in the Philippines had right. been colonized right. since the 1500s. Yeah, and then and then um, uh, under Spain and the United States in um, in the first half of the 20th century. And the, and those are two very different types of experiences, but right. the you know the colonial experiences was, was profound and 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 really shaped what the the Philippines is now. And same thing for other parts of Southeast Asia but they did not have that while there were there were white people who did move over there it just wasn't the type of you know the type of um, settler colonization that we we know and understand and what's what's and what is the default our default understanding of, of um, how indigenous peoples became minoritized in their own lands right. so right yeah Oh man. Okay. So much more
2: to discuss. We are already at our first break point, (laughs) but very excited to, to keep talking to you once we get back. Okay. Uh, We are back from our break. And I want to ask you, I want to keep going with this topic a little bit further because it's it's really interesting. And so, okay. So you're living in LA and I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, growing up in the Philippines, how how indigenous communities were portrayed in the Philippines like you know like maybe in the media or just conversations that you heard and then maybe how that's different from what you're you're seeing and and hearing in living
3: in LA now hmm. well um yeah there, it's a very similar, but also different. Similar, but distinct. The way we think about indigenous peoples in the Philippines, and I'm just speaking really broadly here, gen- generalizing about the population just based on how I grew up and and conversations I've had with people, and and as well as the educational system I went through, um, is that it's there's very much this civilizational discourse that's um, attached to the idea of indigenous peoples, very similar to how, you know, you have a lot of stereotypes about Native Americans and and natives and indigenous peoples, not just in the in the. In the north, but but elsewhere in the world. So, by the civilizational discourse, I mean that you know that there's some some people are more primitive than others, or or less evolved culturally, or you know um, less complex culturally, and that's definitely at play in the Philippines. And part of that was, well, that was very strongly influenced by this kind of very racialized thinking that came out of Europe in the late 1800s, and was definitely sort of it kind of solidified um, during the American colonial period um, in the Philippines, which started in the late 1890s. And so uh, there's even a, a kind of theory of, of cultural diversity, population diversity in the Philippines that we were taught in school um, when I was growing up. And uh, it's still sort of a lot of people still believe this, and it's still propagated in many ways, even though it's already been debunked definitively you know, by, by scientists, by anthropologists. And it's the waves of migration theory. And, and the, that theory goes that the reason why in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, why by that time you had basically the sort of very, very hispanized, Christianized mainstream groups that were dominant in the archipelago, and you also had these much smaller groups that were, you know, I guess to uh, the general public, sort of tribal, you know, with all the the stereotypes that that, that come with it. You know, smaller communities that were not very Western, um, not very comprehensible, you know, in, in terms of Western culture. Uh, and, and so the, the idea of, of uh, behind Ways of Migration is that the reason why you have this sort of cultural diversity in 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 the philippines now is because the thousands and thousands of years ago you had different waves of people coming in to the archipelago with their present day cultures basically fully formed and the level, um, if you will, of cultural achievement that they and sophistication that they were able to um, display had to do with their level of evolution, their, whatever step on the evolutionary ladder they were on. And the re- and and also behind that, sort of the the subtext of that is that the reason why you have the mainstream societies were the ones who converted to Christianity and became very sort of Western and very Hispanic you know, mainstream Filipino culture is because they were the last wave of migrants that came and therefore they were the most evolved. And they were the ones who were able to sort of grasp this sort of highly evolved European culture. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous when you you think about it now. But when we were growing up, this was taught as sort of scientific. And a lot of people still buy into this idea that, uh, and, and of course, what goes hand in hand with that is that is is, is the notion that the indigenous minorities today, that the reason why they are different from mainstream society is not because of different historical processes that acted upon them and their, the, um, how um, completely or incompletely or how differently they were incorporated into, the colonial, into colonial society, but that they're just one, that they're primitive, they're just more primitive as a subspecies of humans it's an extremely racist idea. It's definitely a racist idea that it's, it's somehow in their biology, and then two that the their traditional cultures that they practice today are pre-colonial. How they are today, and their their um, their languages, their traditions, their their songs, their dances, their um, understanding of the world is somehow pre-colonial and was not transformed profoundly by the colonial experience even though the archipelago had been colonized since the fifteen hundreds. So so those those things kind of are, are wrapped up in this whole waves of migration idea. And and you can only imagine if, I mean I'm sort of you know giving you a lot of information right now, but when you think about it, you know, if you think about it more, kind of stew on it for a while, you realize that how, you know, that this, this can have how how profound the, the impact uh, could be on um, how indigenous peoples are perceived and 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 you know in the Philippines and and how mainstream soci- society thinks of them you know and what pl- in where they belong in terms of mainstream society so uh, there's a lot of very racialized prejudice that indigenous minority groups are subjected to and at the same time there's sh- they're also, being exploited and being co-opted in mainstream society's efforts at decolonization you know Mm. and and because they're seen as sort of pre-colonial and therefore that's somehow who we were supposed to be if we had not been colonized so it's it's like there's all these different sort of weird forces acting upon them (laughs) where they're you know they it's basically damned if you do damned if you don't if you're if Mm -hmm. you're uh, one of these you know in in a member of one of these communities. They can't win, and they're just being used as tools um, by mainstream society for their own sort of um, like self-actualization, if you could call it that. And, and mm-hmm. by decolonization, I'm talking about sort of an intellectual movement in, in the Philippines that's been very, very important in the country since the late 1800s. It's not a new thing like it is in in, in North America. It's It's been going on since, you know, our, our sort of national sort of heroes and forefathers um, in the late 1800s that, that eventually formed the, the Philippines as a nation, guess, as a as a concept, they were already doing that. And indigenous peoples were a, an important component of that, uh, basically exploiting, um, co-opting them, co-opting their cultures. So, yeah, I know it's a lot. Yeah,
2: no, that, that actually sounds in some ways more similar to what happened in Mexico, from my understanding, you know, with basically mm, yes. um, you know, like the Mexican Revolution and yep. trying to form this like Mexican identity and really centering that around, you know, La Raza, mm-hmm. Cosmica, and and this um, mix of cultures and indigenous cultures while at the same time yep. indigenous people are, are being discriminated against. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. Okay. So thinking about all of that, obviously you went into working with this this community without even realizing, you know, that, that they were there, that they were indigenous. And so can you talk about, you know, the process when you started working with this community and maybe what some of your, your learning moments were through that process of, you know, I mean, kind of challenging um, some of your, what you were initially taught and things like
3: that. Oh well, yeah. Well, first of all, the the, uh, the community that I work with, um, the group in general, um, they're they are a Lumad group, and the Lumad are the um, the indigenous non-Muslims of of the south. And there are quite a few different Lumad groups, about eighteen sort of major groups, and then a lot of subgroups under that. The group I work with um, is called the Higaonon, and. Among the Higaonon, there are many different subgroups, a lot of cultural variation. And I work mostly with people in the eastern part of of Misamis Oriental province, so the Higaonon Lumad. Yeah, well, there were a lot of sort of major learning or aha moments along the way. And a lot of it had to do with the prejudices and the biases that I grew up with. Now I, I you know as, as as enlightened as I thought I was, being in the field and and actually meeting these people and getting to know them and listening to them, uh, spending time with them. I you know there was a lot of unlearning that I had to do, as far as how I believed the world was, mm-hmm. and so that was a very interesting experience for me, and and. Um, hmm. There were a lot of things that I learned from just sort of listening and and in, in the course of my work. And, and this is so this is again a very, very long period. First of all, how the idea of assimilation versus not being assimilated, how that's really a farce in terms of how people really live and present themselves on a daily basis. One way I learned this was exploring people's life histories, individuals' life and employment histories, and when I was in the field, uh, you know, it was so tempting to look at the the different people I interviewed as sort of, oh yeah, you know, so they're this way, the way that I see them now, they're this way. Um, you know, they're they're um, doing traditional sort of upland farming. They live in really, really small settlements. Um, they live in these kinds of houses and that kind of stuff. They have traditional gardens and and uh, fish in the rivers and 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 um, live like, Indigenous peoples, you know, in, in a very romanticized sense, but then uh, talking to people, some of them had actually done military service. Some of them had, some of them had worked in the logging companies that that their own people were um, got into trouble fighting. Um, some of them had joined the rebel movement and fought to fight the logging companies that were there. Um, some of them had even gone to work in. Saudi Arabia as migrant workers, you know, and so in the course of, of you know any given adult's life, they had gone through these different sorts of experiences. That if you had caught them at any at a different time, you would say, "Oh, they're fully assimilated," versus seeing them at a different time, "Oh, they're not really that assimilated," you know. Um, and so that whole thing I realized was just a complete farce. Yeah, uh, another significant thing i learned was that there was a lot of meaningful contact between the ancestors of these these communities and the colonial figures in the spanish period and that's actually what my my book is about in 2013 i was going to say my first book but i don't have another book out yet it's still still working on it so it's my only book right now but that is basically the, the subject of a mountain of difference. I went into the colonial archives in Spain and tried to find traces of, of these communities and see what I could, you know, just sort of pull out of, of these archives. And that in combination with the oral traditions of theirs that I knew about, you know, and I came up with, with um, a very interesting history. I mean, interesting to me because it really blew up the whole idea that, that the people that we identify as Indigenous minorities today, as opposed to mainstream Filipinos, that they were somehow isolated from the colonial experience, that they somehow were not touched by it, that they somehow did not have a colonial experience, and that's why they're different. So it really just sort of destroyed this, not just dismantled, but just sort of annihilated that that whole idea. And again, that was another sort of eye-opening experience for me. And And... That led to the realization, and it's supported by their oral traditions, which I've been studying more. That's my current uh, research topic now or or part of it. One thing I, I, I picked up on is that it's this contact, actually, with colonial figures that helped create what we identify as traditional cultures today among the Lumad. And I don't mean that it was like the key to traditional cultures today, but that what we see as, as traditional, you know, in, in quotation marks, traditional Lumad cultures today, um, which most Filipinos perceive as being pre colonial cultural traditions, and their deepest traditions that, that, they, that they hold to today were profoundly influenced by this colonial contact. And it's, it's embedded in their oral traditions. That's, and, and, and so not only that, but that their oral traditions, the oral traditions themselves, emphasize change and innovation throughout their history as a people. That's what the, the traditions are about. Um, and so, so it, that basically turned my whole understanding of tradition and heritage completely upside down and inside out. That to them, their idea of heritage and tradition, what counts to them as, you know, what's important to preserve is their history of innovation, the history of the changes that they made. And these are the new things we did. And that's how they remember their, you know, specific ancestors. They're like, this ancestor is the person who introduced this new practice. This is the person who who came up with this new innovation. And this is the person who, you know, who did this and who did that. So their understanding of tradition and heritage is completely different from, I guess, mainstream society's understanding of heritage and tradition, which is about making sure things didn't change so much, about preserving the past, about, you know, basically salvaging sort of ancient things and and, and making sure that they don't disappear so it's it, it's like a, a was completely different take that I did not expect going into it. And but that's, I mean, in terms of aha moments, that's definitely those are definitely the the aha moments for me in terms of my my own work. But to them, of course, it was not an aha moment. They're like, yeah, <laughs> so, so well duh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I said that. Yeah, not that. No. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. it was it was it was great because I was just you know constantly just sort of being you know constantly falling off my chair you know when i talk to people Mm -hmm. because i'm just so surprised oh man okay yeah so i'm still trying to get it you know so we're at our second break point
2: but i really want to to keep diving into some of this um when we get back so everybody hold tight and we'll be back here in a second All right. We are back from our break. And I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier about you, you were talking about your first book and you mentioned that you were working on another book. And so I'm curious if you could tell us more about, about that book.
3: Okay, well, there are actually two books. The book that's my book that I'm writing, and that's based on my field research, the, the, the research that I got permission for from the community, from different communities, uh, is about traditional political authority and um, how that's, I guess, uh, changed over the years and how it, the challenges that, the, that um, Indigenous uh, leaders face in terms of, in in their increasing interactions with the national government. And it's been very, very interesting, a lot of questions about tradition versus modernity and that sort of debate and how it's, how the idea of identity and heritage is being debated internally in, in these various communities. So that's still, you know, that's still, in progress. Um, and that's going to take another couple of years, I think. But but the book I'm really excited about now is is a book that's not going to be available in the States, but it's a book that's being put together, that has been put together by several people in, in, in one of these communities. It's basically authored by a Datu named Budlo, Budlo Ansihagan. And he's, I guess, uh, what you would call a cantor for the oral traditions. And he was assisted by one of his cousins and by my research assistant and some other people over the years. And it took them 10 years to put this together. Um, And it's something that I helped with in, as I would would say, a supporting and supervisory capacity. Uh, And this is a book of their oral traditions written by them. And it's entirely in their language. And it's going to be, I think, probably the maybe the second real book that's in their own language, the first one being the New Testament, which was put together by um, foreign missionaries. So we're very excited about this book, and it's going through the editing stage right now, and we're hoping to printed and um, distributed to the community and to the Indigenous people's education system um, in their ancestral land area um, through the Department of Education in the coming months. And what it is, is basically the story of their ancestors from, I guess, the, the moment of it's not the moment of creation, but it starts with a flood. And then the peopling of, of of their area and and the first ancestors and 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 the succeeding ancestors after that and how they became who they are and and ended up where they are as a people. And it's called the Baligian, and it's just basically the the oral history of Baligian, which is one Higaonan community in Mindanao. Yeah, that's what we've been working on more recently, and um, this will eventually become another book that I'm hoping to, that will come out here when we translate it into English or I translate it into English and, and annotate it. But right now it's, it's basically being produced by the community for the community. Um, and I've been so, I feel so, so incredibly lucky to be a part of it.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm curious about this when you're talking about, uh, you know, that it's in their language and, and just, I'm just thinking like logistically, <laughs> You know, because I imagine that's that's mm-hmm. not a language that you speak. Is that true? And then how you how you made that work? I
3: guess. Oh well, I I can understand it. I, I well I speak it in a ham handed way. I can read it, read enough to, to to spot errors. You know, in terms of editing, and yeah, so I actually do know this language. I'm just not fluent in it in terms of speaking. But it's it's uh, something that started out as a as a side thing. My project was this political, traditional political authority thing, but everybody I spoke to, all the traditional leaders, said, and they're called datus and baes, male and female leaders. They all said, "Well, you need to actually learn the panud to understand what you're looking for in terms of the questions about like how people become traditional leaders and what that whole idea of leadership and of, and, and political authority, you know, what's behind that, is the panud." And so the panud is is their oral. Oral traditions, and and then so in the course of learning about this, they're like, you know, let's write it down because there's no, it's not written down like uh, properly. And the guy that I, the main Datu Budlua, basically told me, you know, people aren't learning this anymore. Kids aren't learning this anymore. And so when I die, this is all going to be gone, or a lot of it's going to be gone. He was uh, pointed out to me by. Datu's in other parts of Higaonon land um, as being the one who's the most knowledgeable of all this. So basically, this is his version of the panud and him, and uh, he can't—he's he can't really write, uh, but so he's had help from his um, cousin who's very literate and and other people like my research assistant, uh, who's from the community, and so they would. You know, after farming, like maybe a couple of nights a week would get together, you know, with with um, with a with a lamp or, a, you know, a flashlight or um, this is like a kerosene lamp and then work on it, writing it down on yellow pad. And then uh, my research assistant would type it into computer when he got back to town. Um, and that's how they worked for, for 10 years. And um, I provided funding support moral support support in terms of like how do we do this thing how do we write it down and and you know it it was really a labor of love for them and uh, yeah, and it took ten years. It's ten years labor. And when we ta- finally presented the draft to the community, different parts of the community, um, just a, f- a couple of months ago, everybody was really, really excited about it. And, and that's how I know that it's you know this is a good thing that we that that they've done. And so yeah, that's that's really is it's, it's I emphasize that it's authored by them and they're it's 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 going to have their names on there as the author. That's awesome. But I, you know, fortunate to be part of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was, when you were first talking, I was wondering if, if your research assistant was, you know, involved in the community in some way, shape, or form, and if that helped with all of that. So it sounds like that, that was a big part of it as well.
3: Yeah, no, it was, it was a really big part of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Community is really excited about this book, you know, and, and obviously I'm sure that has a huge impact. Like you've been working with them. For all this time, and you know, it started with your uncle, but now you have this thing that they wanted. You know, you've shown that you can deliver on what they want. So, what what is next? Like, what what direction are y'all going from here?
3: Well, um, one interesting sort of impact of this, just just the process of working on it. I mean, over ten years. Most people didn't pay pay uh, the working group any mind, but once I was sort of getting more involved again, especially with the editing and stuff like that, then it sort of caused a bit of a stir, and people were concerned that, that you know that you know who's going to own the oral tradition and all of that, and and so it generated a lot of interesting conversations and debates and about this, and at the same time, it's also like in the process, it 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 revived all this interest. In the Panod again, you know, even among in, in communities where people had already converted to Christianity and they were they were looking at the, the Bible as their new sort of Panod, you know. And and so that's been a kind of an interesting thing that's that's developing and it's in process. And one of the other things here is that not directly caused by this, but we've sort of I guess sort of joined up with them, is that the IP education program, Indigenous People's Education Program, which is basically put together in this in this part of, of the Philippines. Philippines by other Higa Onons, younger Higa Onons who had gone to college and gotten teaching degrees. And they're certified as teachers and they basically developed over the years this, this, this thing that they now refer to as IP ed, IP education. A lot of those people working there are, are you know, in their 30s and they're uh, in IP education and they're very interested in you know, compiling these these sorts of things, uh, a lot of things that can they can make into books and, and use as, as teaching materials in in the school system and to, to promote this sort of indigenous curriculum. And um, so we've been in conversation with them and they're very interested in in doing more stuff. And, um, and so I'm very excited that when I go, I'm going to go back in, in, in a couple of months and we're going to actually workshop um, all these different things that they want to do. And so I'm my role here is going to be as somebody who's just sort of going to be training them how to do this. So they're going to be ethnographers. I mean, they're already doing it as amateur ethnographers, but you know I'm gonna provide what I know and 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 and, and try to kind of, make it make it make it a more formal thing and we've talked about maybe co-authoring you know academic articles where they 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 analyze these things and and so it's it's going to become it's sort of a more more collaborative than this um was and so that's the sort of the, the new direction that um i i see my role at least in this going because for me it's it's I think more meaningful if they, they produce this stuff themselves and it should not be me, who's an outsider, um, who's, uh, who's positioned as an authority on Higa culture. Outsiders shouldn't be driving the research agenda here. And so by by providing my, my, I guess I'm sort of training them to be their own researchers. And, and so that's the, the, this, that's the direction that I see this going that I would like for it to go. And, and so it, it wouldn't have been possible without this work on the PANUD which was really kind of where it started, I think. And that just happened, at this, like I said, that's just a byproduct of the the project that I, that I got permission for, which is a study on political authority and I, me interviewing different Indigenous leaders, you know, in the field. So, yeah, so that's what's that's sort of what's going on. So, I mean, I think
2: I'm getting a sense of this already from what you're talking about, but I want to ask you this specifically. Mm hmm. So what's, what's the best part
3: of, of this work for you? Oh, well, definitely, well, you know, you get excited about, you know, learning and and all of that stuff. But for me, the best part really here has been the relationships that I've formed. It's not just that, you know, I made friends when I got there. You know, um, we all like to be liked and everything. And there were some people who hated my guts when (laughs) I first got there because I was such a pain. But over the years, like after after the first decade or so, after I'd been gone for a while and I came back, there was this one guy who really hated me. I mean, he just couldn't stand to be around me. He would just sort of like Make you know, make huffy noises and stuff, and, and just stomp his feet and leave. When I would show up, when I came back, he embraced me and called me his niece, and and so that was kind of interesting mm-hmm. for me, and and I was really suspicious at first, but um, I guess it took that long for them to actually trust and accept me instead of just tolerating me, and it just sort of I think has has been quite good and much more productive since then the relationships that I that I made over almost a quarter of a century. Part of this is watching the kids grow up and and them having their own kids. Um, my research assistant, for example, Jerry Obelno, was two when I met him the first time. Oh, and man. Uh, you know, he was a toddler. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I have a picture of him, you know, with no clothes on and he has a bowl cut. It's very, very funny. But you know, he's um he's done with college, he's been working for an NGO, and he's now going into the Department of Education to join this IP ed program and, and so to watch to watch these kids grow up. And you know, I, I guess it, it feels like it, it it's a very special feeling, I think, to to sort of to be a part of people's lives and, and watch them change and grow and, 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 and become you know adults and, and, and do these amazing things with their life and then you know the the, the the personal journeys that they go through to get there and, and so've I've been really honored to watch all of that with, with the, the kids that I that I met when I first got there who are all grown up now with their own kids. So that's to me has been the, the, the best part of it. That's the part that means the most not any of these sort of journal articles or anything like that those are the things that i that i hold on to when i get when i when i when i start to question my career choices
2: <laughs> I know that feeling. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how often do you get to go spend
3: time with these communities? Well, it's been, it had been a while because of the pandemic, but I was there yeah. uh, recently for oh, yeah. about three months, about three months. And, and like I said, I said, I'm from Mindanao and, and it's in my home province. And so I, I get to also go home, for better or worse, and, and at the same time go do that. So so that's sort of interesting. <laughs> but um, before that, I, before I was at UCLA, which I joined in 2019, I actually worked for the National University of Singapore. And so I was very, very close, you know, uh, in it was like a, it was a three hour, three and a half hour flight or less to the Philippines direct flight um, from Singapore. And so when I worked there and I worked there for almost eight years, I was able to go you know on on brief trips go there for a week go there for a weekend go for a couple of weeks and and so that was I was there quite often over that stretch of time but I hadn't been back for a long extended period until just earlier this year from August to November so and then I'm going to go back again in February and March to um to finish up this book and and hopefully um be able to hand it over. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's how often I, not often enough, I think. <laughs> so is there
2: anything, anything that you're like, oh, I feel like this needs to be
3: talked about or mentioned? Um, anything that we missed? Okay. Well, I mean, we talked about, um, you know, what direction, you know, I, I think it's going, um, what direction I'd like for things to go. Um, I I guess I, I wanted to sort of maybe add to that a little bit is that um, what I would really like to see in terms of, of where I work is to have the communities themselves have the the power to be their own ethnographers and I don't mean just sort of that they, that they collect you know these sorts of data but that they become the gatekeepers of their own cultural knowledge and even though there's a process now where they have to that um, outside researchers have to um, be given free prior-informed consent. It's an FBI process. It's a, in, in the law. In practice, it's not really as ethical as it sounds and it's easily exploited. But I'd really like for uh, people in these communities to become ethnographers themselves and to become recognized scholars in their own right and not just as sort of research assistants, but as co-investigators, co-researchers, co-authors, a true community partnership in in terms of academic research um, for them to be the the recognized authorities um, that people turn to when they have questions about, you know, that concern um, their particular populations. And to be in this, in that capacity, interact with other indigenous, indigenous communities around the world and beyond that, I would really love to see, and it wouldn't, it'd be a, um, a fantastic um, outcome if you had IPs, you had indigenous um, peoples or, or post-colonial na- natives or minority communities studying mainstream majority colonizer communities. I would really love to see that, to have, for example, Higa Onan Lumad um, write an ethnography about people in LA. I think that would yield very interesting results. And I think that would really turn everybody's world upside down. And I can't wait for that to happen. Yes.
2: Yes. Well, on that note, I mean, mic drop, no need to add anything there. I just want to say thank you again so much for for coming on the show. So everyone, make sure you check out um, from Cornell University Press, A Mountain of Difference, The Lumad in Early Colonial, Mindanao. And we will all look forward to your next books. And so excited for you that that oral history project is, is wrapping up and everyone's so excited. And again, just thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and bringing a, a new
3: very interesting perspective for our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.
2: Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. Anthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council, or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to lao Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
0: com.